वेलकम बैक टू अटलांटा डायरीज आई एम योर होस्ट एनमा पोपली थैंक यू फॉर ज्वाइनिंग मी इन अटलांटा डायरीज वी सेलिब्रेट यूनिक एंड इंस्पायरिंग स्टोरीज ऑफ ब्रेक थ्रू वुमेन टू हेल्प फ्यूचर जनरेशंस क्रिएट देयर ओन इफ यू वांट टू नो मोर अबाउट अटलांटा और लिसन टू मोर एपिसोड्स यू कैन विजिट माय वेबसाइट www.enmapopli.com यू कैन आल्सो शेयर फीडबैक और सजेशंस देयर My guest today is Manisha Girotra, Chief Executive Officer of Moilis India. Among many laurels, Manisha was honored as a young global leader in 2010 by the World Economic Forum. She's also been named one of the 25 most powerful women in business in India by Business Today for the past 6 years. Today's conversation is really special to me for more reasons than one. Manisha and I are from the same alma mater. We grew up in the same city and like her my parents are also immigrants from Pakistan. We reconnected after more than 35 years but talking to her made me realize that we had such similar value systems. Manisha entered the investment banking industry when there were very few women and hardly any role models or mentors. But her father, her biggest cheerleader, helped her navigate this paradigm shift. She does feel that she would have benefited by having a mentor. to share ideas or just someone to have a chat with she is therefore on a mission to ensure that women stay the course because she strongly believes that their contribution is invaluable without further ado let's listen to how our conversation unfolded hi manisha a very warm welcome to the show hi anma thanks for having me pleasure to be here i'm so excited and you know there is a special connection uh, chandigarh being the common ground and kamal convent being the even more common ground so while i know your father has played a very key role in your journey thus far love to talk about how kamal convent and growing up in smaller cities like chandigarh and simla played a role in helping you shape your journey and your personality Sure thanks and I actually attribute all that I am today to how my childhood played out more than any training courses etc that you know we are sent to from our organizations after we joined them I think to start with as you said small town chandigarh and simla I think the mountains teach you how to be resilient you know you, you the weather is not conducive half the year and mountain people by and large as you know are resilient people so I think uh, the resilience that I needed through my career comes from just living in the mountains uh, as a child my parents uh, both were migrants you know both moved from pakistan basically started their life uh, all over again and and both were working people their background played a really important role in who i became because my mom i think was always just focused on the fact that i must be a financially independent woman and being a math professor she was you know very focused on academics and grades and academic excellence and sometimes i used to wonder through my career that was it really so important to you know uh, excel in every subject in every year now when i think back i say yeah i mean you know i think what she taught me is that never be afraid to upgrade your knowledge to reskill upskill study hard work hard and i think especially in today's environment and as you know when careers are so disruptive and you know things are changing with technology you need to upgrade your skills all, all the time and i think the fact that my mom made me a geek uh, held me in good stead coming to my dad i think all my leadership skills come from my father you know at a time when financial inclusion was not known as a word he would go around him actually opening branches in the remotest area his style of leadership was unassuming uh, his team loved him 
Even today, when I meet people who work with, who used to work with him, this, you know, say, you know, your dad is the best boss we've had. So I think his his leadership style was so inclusive, so flat, uh, and not hierarchical that I think I learned that from him just by osmosis. Because me and my brother were made to travel in a broken down jeep all over Himachal when he was opening these branches in these remote areas. My mom wouldn't go; she was too scared. But we were taken along to say, "Look, come and see the real world." I'm blessed to be born to who I was and to be brought up in the small town that I was because I think it really helps in character building. So relatable, Manisha, coming from Chandigarh and coming from again a smaller city, coming from a father who, you know, pushed me all along. Even today, when I speak to him, you know, I have not, fortunately, unfortunately, completed my law, which I started in Chandigarh. Even today, I hear from him saying, "Why don't you complete your law still?" I'm like, "Yeah, really." <laughs> so I know what you mean. But how about Kamal? Talk to me about how Kamal played a role because we all still. cherish those memories right about the nuns and how we all had a wonderful time with them so i think uh, uh, both carmel and loreto convent both convent schools that i studied in and i think teach you a strong sense of discipline right we couldn't even afford to have one piece of our uniform out of place one strand of hair out of place you know and i think it teaches you how you must present yourself well in the real world uh, now of course it's more about dressing down at work than dressing up but when i started it was very important that you come well turned out we're in a services business we're not selling a product and i think the discipline the sense of punctuality uh, the sense of just you know carrying yourself well all came from those schools where they were so strict if we were 2 minutes late we would have to stand outside in detention for like hours so i think i can never be late for anything now i'm just so programmed i'm always 5 minutes early but never late and if i get late if i it bothers me and i think that's the bad thing because i think i get really stressed when other people don't in fact if people make me wait for a meeting i get stressed because i think you and i are programmed to punctuality but i think the discipline the hard work the way they uh, taught us if one pronunciation was made wrongly the way we were made to practice it one spelling was wrong i think we had to write it some 100 times so just again the attention for detail and the striving for excellence by hard work and determination is something that was ingrained in you and me by these nuns and uh, and i'm forever grateful for it you brought back so many memories you know this reminds me of sister vincent who even taught us how to write a letter at that time in the end you know i can never forget it's not thanking you but it's thank you you know these are little little things which uh, bring back exactly. and And with the comma in the right place, and you know, it's like yeah, I think I think amazing. Their dedication to their work was just inspirational, right? So true, Manisha. You've said somewhere in one of your interviews that you're an accidental banker, right? You're going to become or trained or in your mind conditioned to do your PhD and become an economist, right? From there, you landed up becoming a banker and a successful one at that. So. what triggered that or uh, what was the turning point which uh, brought you in this field you know while i'd seen my dad who's a career banker it was not something through my growing up years i thought i was attracted to i wanted to go and do a phd i went to stephens in the delhi school of economics and as you know we were all from middle class families means were limited so i thought i would work for a couple of years uh, you know have some savings and then go and do my phd because i wanted to do it internationally but as i say to all my colleagues and the the younger team members who joined that you know i was lucky that i fell in love with what i what i do now and you know what world banking and especially investment banking had to offer to me and i think the fact that i met energetic entrepreneurs people who were better than me smarter than me that inspired me constantly kept me on my toes and you know kept me reinventing myself 
And I think that just excited me so much. And I guess somewhere, even though I denied the fact that I wanted to uh, follow my dad's path, I guess somewhere it was subconsciously, I did like it already. But his was a different kind of banking. Mine was investment banking. But I just loved what I did. And man, 30 years later, I'm still doing it because I love it. And that's the only way you can sustain it. I mean, I say that to everyone. And I'm sure you hear it too, that if you don't love what you do with the kind of hours that we keep, with the kind of, you know, uh, binary decisions of win and lose that we have every nearly every day, you know, you, you couldn't sustain that pressure and that hard work if you didn't love it, uh, much like most other careers. So I, I was just lucky that I accidentally I fell into a career that I, I loved and, and uh, I still continue to love. Monday mornings excite me even now, 30 years later. Absolutely. You know, now that I'm getting to meet even more interesting and phenomenal people in this journey of podcasting, I've realized even more that having something you love to do and something which is purpose-driven is really the secret in uh, continuing to work and till your last day. Through this, Manisha, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the fact that, yes, you fell in love with banking, but I'm sure, you know, when you imagine yourself as a professor or in academia, I'm sure there must have been very different kind of expectations, right? As a professor, you're imparting knowledge, imparting education, but as a banker or when you made a foray into that industry, I'm sure there were a lot of shocks and surprises. So talk to me about those shocks and surprises and how do you navigate that part of the journey? Sure. I think you know, uh, the toughest part of the journey, when I think back, of course, the, the, the tough part was also when I had my daughter, you know, that has its own compulsions and balancing work and life. But I think the toughest part was the initial bit because I entered a man's world, right? I mean, till the time that I became an investment banker, there were hardly any women investment bankers. There were women in banking, but they were in retail banking. And don't forget, those were the days when we still had branches in India. People went to branches to open their bank account. A lot of women were hired, but for retail banking, or at best, women would get a break into corporate banking, which is basically lending. But I don't think investment banking was an area where you saw women. So I think the hardest bit initially was being the only woman in the room most of the times, uh, nearly all the times, and then being comfortable with that and then being taken seriously, right? I mean, I think, I don't think people would, were even used to hearing me. I think hearing me air my views on what, what I think about the company or what I think they should be doing with the, their balance sheet or their financials, etc. I remember initial years, I was at best thought, when I went into meetings, people thought I was either the secretary or then the best compliment I got was that I'm a journalist. So people wouldn't shake my hand or, because people were just so uncomfortable. I mean, as my dad would explain to me when I would get disheartened that, look, you know, it's, they're having a paradigm shift too. They're not used to seeing, I mean, in the mindset of the Indian male or any male, why Indian the best a role a woman can do is that of a caregiver or a nurturer. So I think the initial bit of just being taken seriously, of just being acknowledged, forget being taken seriously, of just being acknowledged as an individual in the team member really was was a challenge. Uh, and, and it you know, as a youngster, you do get disheartened. Now I laugh at the wider, I get disheartened. But at that time, you do tend to think things like, oh my God, is this ever going to get better? Is this ever going to get okay? And, and I think that bit was challenging for the first five, ten years. I think one just had to keep on plodding and plugging and, you know, keep going with, with a thick skin and say, look, I'm going to get people's respect and, you know, get, get forget respect. First, get get a hearing and then worry about the respect, right? Just because, you know, you're entering this job, you're loving what you're doing, but, you know, you're not getting the kind of response that you hope as a young person you want to get. And I think that can be quite disheartening when you're young. It's so beautiful that you had your dad you know, who sort of empathize with you and totally help you navigate that journey. 
at the end of the day, you have to build your own resilience to go through something challenging. But I know, as you said, just to have someone who can sort of say, look, it's fine, it gets better, it helps, right? At the end of the day, if you just have someone to just, you know, grumble a bit to and say, look, what's going on? And, and that person sharing their experience with you and saying, look, it'll get better. I think it just helps. And I think, you know, the, the, as you said about my upbringing, I think through my upbringing, I was the, I was a favorite child. My brother too did. Uh, you know, jokes with my father that Manisha is your favorite child. I think that helped uh, because, you know, in my mind, when I went into these organizations and I felt people are not giving me attention, I didn't feel that there was something amiss with me because I was born to think that I was you know, capable of doing whatever I can, right? If I can do it, go for it was the mantra at home. So I think that helps because while you feel disheartened, you don't feel like you should put pens down. You don't feel like, oh my God, this is an irretrievable situation. Whether it's my mother or me, we had more than an equal role in our in our respective uh, spectrums. So I think that helped me tide over the first few years. While at home, you were sort of taught to brace yourself. Did you actually have any deliberate conversations with your colleagues or did you take it on yourself that, OK, I need to change this situation? Yeah. So you know, that's what I say to the younger people in my team that, you know, especially the younger women, if they are um, looking to quit or, you know, feeling disheartened that, look, when I started off, I had no role models. There were no women you could look up to and say, oh my God, if she can do it, I can do it. I had no peers. I had no HR where you could go and say, look, you know, the diversity is a big issue. Or today, HR in every organization is driving diversity. Why HR? Even CEOs are driving the whole diversity campaign, right? So so you were pretty much on your own and you couldn't go there and say, look, I want to teach the world because, you know, anyway, the world has is showing little credibility in what you're doing. So the only way you could prove yourself was to just keep going and working hard. And as you said, just demonstrating through your work that you, you know, you're serious about staying and serious about this career. And you're not just here till you get married or till you have your first kid. It's not a tick in the box or you're not you're not helping supplement the family income. You're doing this because you love this. So I always say to my younger colleagues that, look, if we could do it with all, not, not saying that, you know, we, we, we are better than the, uh, the younger generation has another set of challenges. But I think today, the tools you have, the, you know, whether it's through uh, technology or whether it's, you know, just the ecosystem you have, where you can actually go and discuss these things with other people in your team, in your in HR, even your CEO. I think we didn't we didn't have that. There wasn't that kind of awareness, right? The paradigm shift was happening, but was happening too slowly and too subconsciously for people to realize that it was happening. So, unfortunately, I didn't have that in mind. I, I wish I had it, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was a lonely journey in that context. I want to double click on the loneliness. You know, you've traversed a journey from an executive now to a CEO. So is that loneliness a reality? No, actually, I don't think so now in my, you know, I think people say that it's lonely as a CEO, etc. I think um, if you make your leadership style unassuming, inclusive, make a flat structure, which investment banking is about, as you know, we're not, a, it's not a, a profession which really caters to a large amount of hierarchy. So you create a flat structure where, you know, people are not afraid of to say what they want to. People are, you know, can focus on innovation. Don't forget our business is about going with original ideas to a company or a client, to the CEO of a client business company and saying, look, this is what we should be, we think you should be doing. And often these ideas can come from younger people because, you know, even today they are far more aligned with what the disruptive changes that are happening than you and me. So I personally think that if you create a structure which is flat, inclusive, people actually have fun at work it's not lonely at all it's still work in progress but i hope i'm able to do that because i personally feel that once you do that and you and you find people who like you love doing what you do in your team 
then it can be a pretty good journey. I mean, it, it's our team versus the other team. So it, it becomes a team sport. And, I, and a team sport a leader is just one of the members because I think a lot of the uh, young people are just fabulous, the analysts and the associates and the kind of inputs they provide because they don't forget, they put in the longest hours, right? They're reading the most. So I don't think of it as lonely anymore. The, the lockdown was lonely for all of us. But I, I don't think now being back to work is lonely at all. I love my team and I enjoy being with them and I hope they feel the same. So let's talk a little bit about how your journey from UBS to Moilis evolved. You know, like in UBS, you inherited a bank and you inherited the role. But in Moilis, you've set it up from scratch. And I uh, read that, you know, you've also tried to create a wonderful gender ratio of 40s to 60, you know. So I'd love to talk a little bit more on your the journey of a CEO and how it's evolved. Sure. Actually, you know, uh, I set up UBS in India too. So when I joined UBS, UBS actually downsized and then we had to go through scratch. So in fact, when I when I used to go into meetings, people didn't know what UBS was. There was a courier company called UPS and they would say, well, courier wali madam I am. So I was for a long time a courier wali yeah, madam. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I did this twice, both with UBS and Molus. While it's hard because each time you're you're actually you know going in with a very different name, people are used to certain set of banks already existing. And what we're trying to do for most clients is transformational. So people want to stay with people they know as opposed to some new kid on the block. But you know, it's exhilarating at the same time. It challenges you. I always say that, you know, always do a startup if you're ready to basically, you know, lose your titles and your corner office and say, look, that doesn't excite me. What excites me is the ability to create something new and uh, rise to that challenge. Yeah, so I think that's that's what uh, worked for me. And uh, and I think uh, the fact that in Molis, uh, my boss is Ken Molis, and it's his firm is named after him. The fact that he was my boss at UBS, you know, so there was a comfort zone because I'd worked with him. And, you know, as I said, I am a people's person. I like to, I think I do well only when I am around people who I can trust and, you know, who I believe share that reciprocate, that trust and confidence. So I think the fact that I knew Ken and Ken also actually hired a lot of people ex-UBS. So we globally as a team, we knew each other well uh, and that helped. But having said that, of course, you're pretty much starting from scratch, whether it was at UBS, but even more so at Mollis. You know, when you, the people don't know what this firm is and you're as, actually asking them to trust you with their business of fundraising or merger and acquisition, it's a huge leap of faith. And, you know, you really have to build up brick by brick again. It tests your own credibility because, you know, in the initial few years, people are really actually just trusting you rather than the firm because that's what they know. They don't know the firm. So it tests you in every which way. Uh, and you have to put your game face on. You have to put your best foot forward because you're competing with the big banks. I always say it's like going to war with a kitchen knife, right, uh, in the initial years. But I think as you get the wins and as you get win the credibility of clients and their trust, I think it's it's gratifying because, you know, you know you, you, you've done this by yourself. In one of your interviews, I read that you said that it's like a gladiator sport, right? Investment banking. Obviously, it's very hard to listen to rejections or like you said, you're competing with so many other leaders already existing. But how do you navigate or do the balancing act? Like at workplace, obviously, you have to don a very tough hat. Is the Manisha at home the same? How do you do the balancing act? So as you said, it's a bit of a gladiator sport. And that's where a bit of the what you said about the loneliness plays out because while, you know, so the whole team plays at the end, the win or the loss, you need to take ownership for as a, as a leader, right? I mean, so I think to that extent, it does get a bit lonely because, you know, you need to make sure that the team stays charged up, even though you've had a big loss where we work for months or maybe we're working on merger and acquisition and it falls out at the last minute. 
for maybe the right reasons, but it doesn't go through. To that extent, it does get a bit lonely because you need to carry those uh, losses on your shoulder and not get the, let the team get motivated because we have to get to the next. So that bit is lonely, I think. As far as am I any different at work than home? I don't think so. I think of myself as someone who's authentic, who takes her real self into work. You know, in my, our business is also a lot about repeat business, right? And uh, repeat business and referral business. And word spreads if you're trying to be something you're not or if you're trying to, you know, just be very short-sighted in terms of winning the next deal or, you know, just closing the deal and making the money. We, we get paid only on success, right? It's a small market. I say that to my team also that don't try and be something you aren't, you know, and if we have certain limitations as an organization versus another organization, you could you know, transparent with the client and say, look, on something like this, maybe you benefit from having another bank with us or maybe, you know, maybe we're not the right people for this because maybe that deal you won't do, you'll feel bad, but the next one will come your way because either through that client or from the other recommendation the client will put for you. So my whole learning and my whole experience has been that the more authentic you are, the more of you, you bring yourself to work, uh, I think the more sustainable it is in the long run. So you will inevitably fall if you're just putting on uh, an act which is not you. So yeah, this is how I am, whether it's work or home. You know, I've had a lot of conversation with a lot of leaders and all of you have echoed the same thing, you know, bring your authentic self, then you don't have to plan, you don't have to prepare. And this Manisha takes me to then the role of a woman who's always been a caregiver and a nurturer. How do you see that part of your personality then going to the workplace? Or I know you've been, you're a part of many boards. How do you bring that part of your personality to all these different roles? So I think no, it's not unique to me. Any woman, and I don't say this uh, lightly, I genuinely believe that women have a higher EQ, right? I think just, just because of how we're brought up in terms of and how, how we are programmed to be nurturers, caregivers, as you said, I found women are far more loyal, trustworthy, hardworking. And, you know, in our business, it's important to have a high EQ because if you're telling somebody to sell their company, it's like telling them it's, it's a baby for them. It's as important to them as their own children, right? And if you're telling someone that our advisors that, this company is probably outlived its time with you. It's time to sell the company or telling some CEO to go and buy a company, you know, which could be transformational. Then he's thinking that, you know, transformational also means if it goes wrong, the banker goes away. But I'll be, you know, I probably will lose my job. So I think we read the tea leaves better, you know, in terms of how to present these things, you know, not just like you go in there and have all the right numbers and the right spreadsheets and say, I've done all the work and look, we're presenting it. You do it with more empathy. Uh, and, and that's not just when you're trying to win business, but even when you're trying to execute something. So I think it's not unique to me. And I've seen this time and time again in all the women that I've hired, that they bring more empathy, more more honesty, more loyalty into their uh, way of working. And that pays off. So I'm a big believer in supporting women through their tough times, not just because I think that's the right thing to do for women, but also I think it's the right thing to do for the organization, because I think those women if you support them through their challenging time, will will be so loyal and faithful to you and contribute so much more. And, you know, typically these women don't just switch quickly for just a slight pay raise or a slight promotion, which men do, you know. It's, it's just always looking for the, as generalistic as it sounds, that has been my experience that, you know, support women through tough times. They support their organization so well uh, that you would be glad that you made that investment in them. This takes me actually, Manisha, to a very recent conversation I had with a senior leader, back home in India, who actually wants to bring in diversity in his team. Ironically or not, he's getting the maximum pushback from women itself. 
you know, he doesn't want to create like a quota system or like a reservation system. But he also believes that it's important to bring in that diversity because it brings a diversity of thought and a diversity of perspective. What's your thought on this? And uh, how would you help this person think through this challenge? What advice would you give? I do feel that women do feel a little threatened uh, with other women. And it's sad because I think we think of the fact that we are a tick in the box, right? That this the organization is going to just hire one or two women and we are the one or two women who are there and we have to make sure the others don't come because, you know, hiring an, oh, in a wider way uh, women in the workforce is not something that is in, in the DNA of that particular organization. But you put men also into that situation, they will have the same competitive uh, attitude, right? Uh, the corporate world is about being competing with each other, even within teams, forget outside. So, you know, anyone who's put in that, in that construct will tend to push back. So that's where the pushback comes from. And you need to think on what you're doing to make these women feel secure on the fact that you are not a one-off. You are here because, you know, this is the change I, I am going to bring in this organization. Make public statements that I want a 50-50 workforce, right? Get people comfortable that you're not going to be a one-off phenomena. And the minute the second woman comes who's younger, who's better, who can work longer hours, you will be told, you know, that you, you, can, you can then move on. And the minute you make people feel comfortable, as I said before, you know, I pride myself in making my team comfortable because I think that's when you bring the best out in everyone. That's when you start thinking team and not yourself, right? You have to encourage people to start thinking team. And that will only happen when you make me comfortable that I am not in a threatening position. I don't have to keep minding my back. I don't have to worry about what's next in store for me. So once you make me feel comfortable, I will give you my best. and I will hire the best talent because I want my team to win. So and if you feel that even then it doesn't work, then maybe think of quotas. Even if it's not public, quotas, quotas in your mind. Like I did, right? I was like, I consciously want to do 50-50, right? So I think the onus lies on each one of us as a leader to bring that change, whether it's through quotas, whether it's through just talking about what your ethos is and what you're trying to achieve and saying to the team, look, help me achieve this goal because as a team, we'll win much more if we achieve this goal. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just wondering, do you think they're giving that pushback because or they don't want people to perceive that they've come in because of that quota? What's your sense on that? Like, do you think that could be a starting point? And I'm just wondering that proactively even addressing that, I'm thinking aloud with you on what do you think is the mindset of those women who are giving the pushback about the quota system? On this quota system, my grandfather used to always say, even if you get in for the wrong reason, stay in for the right reason. So you may join that board because, you know, you're, you're that one mandatory woman but then you make sure you do a good job you're the best at what you do you know your stuff better than anyone else on that board so that people respect you and say look feel inspired that you know we want to hire a second woman woman because women are good for the board so i think women who are who are pushing back on this quota again maybe deep down don't genuinely feel confident that this is sustainable change right when i speak to them they feel that this is a tick in the box being done either for regulatory reasons or but just because, you know, diversity has become like the cool thing to do at the top. And, you know, that's the change that the CEO is trying to bring. And you know, this is a transitional thing. So I think you need to basically make people in your organization feel comfortable that this is here to stay, that, this, you know, you're an authentic leader who means what you're saying. And you will bring about this change for the long run. Because otherwise people will push back. Because the history has shown them that it's not the case, right? That one or two women, the minute the third woman comes, you know, the boys club comes back and uh, and claws back its position. So if you speak to any, most women, they feel uncomfortable about that. that. The fact that the change is not for real, it's transient. I think being deliberate about it and really putting it out there to me sounds like really, you know, even the CEO is then showing the intention that they really want to do it for the right reason. And I love your grandfather's perspective. <laughs> 
Manisha, shifting gears a little bit, two CEOs in the same house and going back from a maybe 14 hours of work. Is there like a rule saying no, talking about work? I think uh, there is no rule. I think one comes back so exhausted that one isn't really looking for making any work conversations, honestly. People ask me this and I'm like, uh, no, I don't think there is some strategic planning going on, unfortunately, that I can impress you with here. It's just, it's called sheer exhaustion. Plus also, you know, the fact that we have a child, she has, you know, they come back home, you want to spend time with her. You know, when she was younger, the fact that her best friend had gone and become someone else's best friend was the biggest crisis when you came home. Or the fact that, you know, her cake had turned out flat was a bigger crisis than anything that had happened at work. So I think that was nice and invigorating and different. And then as as uh, we're getting older, we have aging parents and, you know, the, the issues around aging parents and the, that gets quite consuming just looking after them, especially through the pandemic. So I think, yeah, I think the personal lives are what uh, takes priority at home. And uh, we both have a life outside of work. We have friends outside of work, which have, have no idea what we do with our work. And that's nice because I think that keeps you in perspective. Because I remember this friend of mine said, my closest friend said to me, so what do you do? Do you actually set up ATMs around the country? So, you know, that's how little clue she had on what I do, and which is great. That's also important because, as you said, our careers are tough, long hours, challenging jobs. So, you know, it's nice to come home and not think about all of that for a while. I totally understand. And I still want to sort of explore that perspective because I feel uh, I'm married to another CEO, right? And I also understand that whether we like it or not, we cannot switch off from work. You know, at your level, you cannot switch off from work, right? So my question to you is that, Who's then your go-to person, you know, like where do you, uh, sometimes you need that sounding board or sometimes you need to sort of think through, like you said, you know, there are times when you have to pull yourself up. Who's that go-to person then? I think my go-to person, actually, honestly, when I think back has been my father all through, right? I don't think it's been anyone else. It's just, I think, as you said, you know, they they push you and they, and they mean, they know you well and they're like, you know, you can do this, you got this. So, I think uh, through my career, my father's been just that strong support for me. And then, of course, the fact that my, my mom and mom-in-law have been very supportive with my daughter, you know, all that helps. But I think my go-to person when I'm really down and out is my dad. You know, I'm pretty good. I can pick myself up. I get back quite quickly. I mean, I think of myself as a resilient person that way. And also, as I said to you in the beginning, I love what I do. So I can come back. I can feel sorry for myself, mope like we all do and say, oh, my God, the world's against me. But then come next morning, I, I know how to pick myself up and get this. You know, over the years, you get better at this stuff. A lot of it, I think I can take on myself. But I think I would still say my go-to person is, is my dad. Not just because of what he says to me, but just his positive energy and his desire to will and upgrade his skills and, you know, live life fully just, just makes it, re-energizes me. And I think most of the times that's what we need more than anything else, right? Yeah, and you spoke about the flat structure at banking. And I'm also wondering that that also probably has allowed you to bring in a lot of vulnerability in the system. Maybe now living in this part of the world or maybe being a coach myself. Coaching also plays a huge role, you know, in being a good sounding board. So I'm just wondering from your perspective that one, your dad, and two, investment banking being a, like you said, a relatively flat structure. Does that, you think, play a role in allowing you to be vulnerable and having those safe spaces within work itself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I because the, the structure is so flat, you can actually... As I said, you carry the wins or losses on your shoulder, but if you're feeling terrible about it, you can discuss it with your team. You know, it's it's not seen like, oh, you can't have that discussion. So I think you can bring your vulnerabilities to work. But, you know, in my year is a good point, which is that 
when I started off, you know, you didn't have the kind of coaches today. And I think young, younger people benefit from that enormously. I've seen that time and time again, both in the, in the world of finance, as well as in the world of tech, and, you know, in my clients also, that I think, uh, you know, they actively, the CEOs are promoting that the team go in for coaching sessions, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I've seen the growth that those individuals have had. So I'm a big believer and I strongly encourage my team also to go in for these coaching sessions. And I see the difference and they themselves tell me that they feel the difference because I think sometimes, as you said, just speaking about things to in a, in a safe space with a neutral person helps you so much. Even if you talk to your team member, you you are worried that are you being judged. I wish we had some of that stuff in our, our, our times. We were just like doing everything hit and trial, right? So, but I think it's much more structured now and I'm a big I'm a big fan of that. I joke with people, I'm a coach, but I have a coach myself, you know. So I was actually listening to Marshall Goldsmith yesterday in one of his podcasts. And it's just so interesting how he's saying that, uh, you know, I have someone calling me up every single day. And that's the only way I've been able to write my fourth book, you know. So whether it's accountability or whether it's just, um, you know, for the sake of discipline or just for the sake of having a sounding board, sometimes these platforms are super helpful. You know, in one of your interviews... You talked about that you're despondent that a lot of women are work, leaving the workforce. And interestingly, I read the same in uh, the recent McKinsey report, the intersection report. And, you know, that numbers are going down, even at the leadership level, people are sort of leaving the workforce. What's your thought on that? And at Moilis or before that at UBS, what has been your uh, strategy or your approach to address this? So, you know, this is a really disheartening uh, statistic, especially, you know, given the fact that the pandemic has taught us that flexi hours, working, you know, finding different ways of working or contributing to the workforce, reskilling and upskilling women who have been out of the workforce and bringing them back in. The pandemic has taught us that all that works. So why is it that it's not translating into numbers? It's translating in, into numbers at in the education uh, of women, it's translating into numbers at the entry level, but just as soon as the career of the husband takes off or the spouse, if the woman's married, the spouse takes off and the husband starts earning well, then the woman is asked to drop out of the workforce. When I speak to the young women, it's because most families do not think of a woman's career as a career. They think of it as a job, as a job that is which is enhancing an income. And as soon as the income gets to a level where the family of three or four or five and depending on the number of kids, parents, uh, etc., can be, can be uh, satisfied by the husband, his career is doing well, then the woman is told, look, why don't you step back, look after the children, look after the parents, that's needed, you know, my husband's earning well. And really the problem is the patriarchal mindset at our, in our homes where the woman's job is just seen as a supplement, right? It's just like you, you're either doing this to entertain yourself for a few years till the baby's came, or you were doing it to enhance the income, or you were just doing it so you don't get bored at home. That's not the mindset. My career is as important to me as my husband's career is to him, right? And most women feel that way, right? But I think, uh, ironically, you know, and I feel a lot of the messaging, because we are tuned like that, comes from the mom or the mom-in-law. They will tell the, the girl that, you know, the, that you should quit quit working because I think patriarchy is so, um, so much uh, subconsciously induced into us from our childhood that, you know, every mom wants their daughter to be seen as the best caregiver and nurturer. That's the first report card I must ace, right? All other report cards are secondary. So so I think the mother herself will encourage the daughter to leave. So I think that's what is the big issue. And, you know, look, uh, from the pandemic, the learning should have been that one should... And organizations, by the way, are doing it. And they are 
actually encouraging women to work from home, flexi hours, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They could they do more? Of course, they could do more. But I think they are being a little more, much more flexible. I think the mindsets at home need to support the mindset change at work more rapidly. I think that's not changing fast enough. Interestingly, there were one or two other reasons leading to this number going down. Like I read about microaggression at work. I read about lack of psychological safety at work. So what's your sense on that? And did you experience such incidents, you know, as you pursued your career? Yeah, of course, definitely. You know, uh, look, I think the boys club does hit back the fact that women can't network or they don't go out for a drink on a Friday evening, even though they may be themselves Monday to uh, Friday. The fact that you're not able to network uh, or, you know, go for that golf game on a Sunday morning, I think is made to feel like, you know, you're not contributing in the right way or you're not serious about your career, which is absolutely untrue, right? And the wrong way of looking at it. But I think that sort of is is told to a woman casually that, oh, you wouldn't come now, right? You need to go home to your kids. And, you know, one shouldn't feel guilty about that, that, you know, you need to go home on a Friday evening after working long hours. But I think as a woman, you are made to feel that in a lot of organizations. And that plays on women's mind because they actually start believing that, oh, my God, you know, I'm not doing the right thing. I need to contribute more. It starts, the, the guilt starts playing on them uh, and then the tone between the two worlds, because, you know, while they're at work, they're guilty about home. While they're at home, they're guilty about work. And I think that makes them fall off because they feel that, you know, they're not contributing enough. So, yeah, I know, you know, all those water cooler conversations about, you know, the Friday evening plans or the Sunday morning plans and where the women are not made to feel inclusive, I think plays a lot on women's mindsets. I had the same too, you know. People would ask me uh, things like, so when are you getting married? Uh, clients and, you know, in, in meetings and when are you having your first kid? I don't think any uh, male counterpart of mine has asked those questions, right? And it, and I was asked these questions in a group meeting, right? I was singled out and asked these questions. And it makes you really uncomfortable because, I mean, I'm there, not there to talk about my personal life. I'm there to talk about, much like all my other colleagues, I'm there to talk about my work credentials and, you know, what I bring to the table. But I think the conversation would switch, would switch so organically to my personal life. And then there would be 10 heads looking at me waiting for my response, right? So... Uh, and I think when I want to have a kid or what I'm when I want to get married is personal to me, right? It's not something to be discussed in a public forum or a work forum. So, yeah, I felt I felt it too. I felt a lot of pain with that, and you know, uh, felt that I was being taken lightly and casually because in the mind of the person sitting across me, I was only there biding my time till the marriage or the babies or whatever else was my personal agenda for the next few years. It's very hard for women because I think um, that that m- mindset. You know, the patriarchal mindset I talked about in my doesn't stay at home. It comes to work too, right? It, it spills over at work subconsciously. It's And, it, you know, what we're doing at, at home to women to pull them out of the workforce, that same mindset the man brings to work, right? So unless that mindset doesn't change at home, it won't change at work. So you can you can have all the diversity conversations, et cetera, but you need to actually train to, I mean, with, with the women. But you actually need to train the men, right? They need to be part of that conversation. They need to be part of that change as much as the, the women are already converted. They want to be there, right? They were dropping out because of either what's happening at home or, as you said, what the pressure they're feeling at work. So you need to make the male counterpart, the sponsor of the change, own the change and, you know, say that I am the change agent, right? And and feel pride in that change. Until uh, then, the change won't happen. You know, we, we keep on losing women in the workforce. I'm also wondering, how do we brace the women, though? You know, like... At the systemic level, uh, one perspective is that the men have to understand the change and the need for the change. But the other perspective is also making the women much stronger. Like your dad said, you know, empathize and understand that they've also not gone through or your dad kept on giving that push. So 
creating those cheerleaders at work or creating those cheerleaders within yourself how, what's your perspective on that it has to be both right and while we talked about the change that we have to do with the workforce with the men as you rightly said the women have to lean in too right i mean we have to make our voice heard we have to make our views heard we have to develop a bit of a thick skin and not take everything personally well, i mean not saying that you should take any comments casually but at the same time not everything should be taken too personally and you know said oh my god you know what did he mean and read too much about this about the fact that i'm single out of the friday evening uh, drink bar night etc so i think absolutely you're right women need need to lead the change and uh, i think today the fact that you have coaches mentors etc is good because you know i think women today the younger women must reach out to people and through technology today it's so easy to network you don't have to go to that bar to network right you can reach out to anyone through social media linkedin etc and just have a conversation and look some of the older people who've been in this business longer will tell you that you know they went through this and how they went through it right and what they did and why certain things are not the end of the world and you know for example when your kid is young and the kid is not well and you're leaving the kid at home it's nice to know that someone else went through that experience and you know survived it and you know and is here to tell the story so i think today women must reach out must build a network for themselves because there are enough working women right i mean there are enough entrepreneurs working women professionals so make a cohort through, and through social media you can do it easily reach out to each other build that network and be there for each other we we have to build a sisterhood right we can't do this alone we need a sisterhood which can help lift us all up and i think that's really important the young people must do that because they have that ability and that network which we didn't have right as you as you said we were just grappling through things right a little bit luck a little bit hard work a little bit of you know some shoulder to cry on but i think today you have can do it in a much more structured way where you have role models coaches and a network which can help you through these tough and challenging times uh, and yes absolutely the onus is as much on the women as the men there's no question about that yeah boys club versus sisterhood i like that perspective manisha talk to me about setbacks in your journey or what was your biggest fear and how did you navigate slash cope with it setbacks are daily and we lose our win business daily so setbacks as our uh, careers are binary it's one zero one so yeah so that happens all the time you're only as good as your next deal you can't rest on your laurels it's a business where you start from zero every year uh, you can't brag about the fact that i made x million dollars last year or i did 20 25 transactions marquee transactions what is the next transaction you're doing is what we're worth for so and you know if you lose of course it's a setback so that will is there uh, all the time so but yeah of course then there are setbacks in career when you you don't get that desired promotion or you think you should have you know got that that bigger job etc etc those things happen but i think if i were to um, look back and while i think my parents taught me a lot on excellence hard work i think the one lesson i think i wish i had learned earlier in life is that failure is good you should fail early in life fail early you learn and fail early and get up and rise and you know get on with it because i think failure is the best teacher right i mean success numbs you and i'm sure you heard this from a lot of people so nothing unique i'm telling you but success numbs you you're surrounded by all people who tell you all good things about you failure is when you really learn who your real friends are you know your character build you you become more resilient and i i really think failure is not a bad thing today when i meet entrepreneurs who failed the first time i i i know that they will automatically do better than this time because they've learned so much from their first experience right so my my message to young people always is that don't take failure personally it's good it's I mean, so long as you learn from it right if you, if it's a if you uh, take it as a setback and say oh my god the world is coming to an end that's different 
but just sit back, calibrate, say, what did you learn from it and come back a better version of yourself. Then I think failure can be a great ally. And I always tell everyone failure is a pause. It's not the end. It's just a pause that life is giving you to recalibrate, upgrade and come back better, stronger, more refreshed. So yeah, I think that's something that I learned the hard way. And I wish I'd learned it earlier. Talk to me more about this. I meant I meant more in terms of just in terms of winning business, losing business, right? Initially in my career, I very personally and say, Oh my God, do you know why didn't I get it? I would navel gaze and say, What did I do wrong? You know, what and it's not personal. The client may have chosen another firm because A, you know, they trust that firm more, or you know, they're they're more comfortable with that firm. It's not personal each time. Corporate life is not, you know, people people have decisions to make, people have their own careers and own jobs at at risk. So I think I took it personally each time and it's not personal. It's just that, you know, every time you lose a piece of business or, you know, you lose an, a team member who you really loved and put invested a lot of time and energy in, but they still left you for another form. It's not personal. The individual thought that, you know, they've done what they did in this organization and now need to move on to somewhere which can give them more, right? Change is good. And you don't have, one doesn't have to take it personally if your colleagues who you've invested a lot in go away. Because frankly, I think you feel, now today I feel proud when I see my colleagues who I, feel I you know invested a lot in doing well in other organizations I feel so happy I'm like you know look uh, that means I contributed in a wider way than just in a narrow organization so so that's what I meant uh, in terms of just what I, I learned that I learned by taking it personally initially which I thought took a real toll on me whether it's in business whether it's losing the people or not being or some people who I wanted to hire not coming to me I took it all very personally and you know it, it's not personal it's just once you just embrace change and once you just embrace failure in every context and, and in bigger context than, you know, what I'm quoting, it's uh, sometimes you don't get along with your boss, you know, and uh, you know, the boss doesn't give you the job you want or give you the project you want. Happened with me also, right? So uh, not just because of gender reasons, just because at that point, my boss thought I wasn't the right person. I didn't know enough about that sector. That's fine. Then I need to learn from that setback and come back, upgrade my skills. And so that next time he or she trusts me instinctively to uh, give me that job, right? Other than say, oh my God, there was something personal there. It isn't. So that's what I meant. And I think while I was good at assuming change, you know, when I changed organizations or when, as you said, from going from UBS, which was a really large organization to going to Molis, which was small, the change never scared me. I love changing. And I I think because I, I really thought that when I make the changes, when and when I move out of my comfort zone, that's when I do best. That's when all my senses are alert and I'm like, you know, giving my best to my job. I never feared change, but I think uh, the fact that I didn't embrace failure as well as I could have earlier in the career is something that I would like to change. Mm, that's interesting. Manisha, were you deliberate about your uh, career journey from Grindley's to now? Or what advice would you give to young men and women how do should they look at their career like you know with the wisdom of hindsight any perspective sure I think what paid off for me and my is the fact that I didn't make the change for the next extra dollar or something I made the change because I felt that what I could gain from that particular change in terms of just my my skills upgradation or you know just in terms of exposure I would get was much more than what I was getting in my current job and so I invested in myself. And I always say that a career is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? And we shouldn't think about it as a, especially in today's startup world, you know, a lot of the startups will promise you a lot of options or, you know, front-end payment. Do it because you think you believe in what that startup is doing or, you know, what that company is doing. Not because, you know, you're just getting a front-end two-year payment, which is great, but, you know, the learning will be poor. So I think I benefited from the fact that I always made the change and was was happy to make the change, uh, 
when I thought it contributed to me and I would I would gain more from that uh, change uh, than I was currently. So I haven't changed too much. My longest career stint was at UBS and then now more or less 12 years. I know you've done a lot of work in mentorship. Yes. Talk to me more about your mentorship journey, whether at the receiving end or at the giving end. So now, as I said to you, I didn't really have role models or mentors. And, you know, in my early part of my career, I thought, great, you don't need it. I mean, you know, I know what I have to do and, uh, you know, how investment bankers are. I think you know it all, you can do it. But, you know, through my journey, I felt I would have benefited so much by having a mentor or a role model or, you know, and more a mentor. I don't think a role model, but I think a mentor would have really helped someone. You can just go, as you said, have a monthly coffee with and, you know, just sort of share some ideas or just, just have a chat, right? I felt that as I as I worked more and you know after about twenty years of working that especially women because you feel so insecure and you know challenged at work in certain at certain points so even how your personal life can sometimes become overwhelming uh, that you know just having someone say, older than you who'd been through it you know would have helped if I'd had that sort of a perspective and that's where it came from it didn't come from where I benefited but where I think I would have benefited enormously from in my journey. Because as you said, you know, you asked me earlier, who who was my sounding board? I said to you, it was just my dad. I didn't have anyone. So I think um, that's where it came from. And I, I'm i just passionate about having women stay the course, just because I think it contributes so much more to the organization. Organizations which are diverse, you can see it, right? Across industries, I've seen it in my work as a board member, not just as an investment banker. Organizations that have women at the top, at the mid-levels do so much better. So, you know, I feel that I, if I can do a little bit to just keep women, convince them to stay the course. This is not about women entering the workforce. I feel that's happening anyway. Just for women to stay the course, whatever I can do, uh, I want to do. And so that's so my mentoring is more towards women in the workforce than, than men. So what kind of challenges are you seeing which is avoiding them to stay the course? I know you spoke a lot about guilt. You've said that guilt stays, has, still stays with you. So is it because of guilt, you think? Yeah, guilt plays a big role because, as I said, the first report card is that one is the one at home, right? And if that's getting a B minus or C plus, then as a woman, you're programmed to say, "Oh my God, I just have to give up on everything else." If the kids, uh, kids different box doesn't meet the mark of you know the the other other kid whose mom is a stay at home and has a perfect different box, you know, in school, then that's a guilt that stays with you, and the kid comes and tells you at home. So guilt, the patriarchal mindset at home, the ecosystem. The patriarchal mindset that spills over at work uh, and, you know, creates a boys club where you feel like you're, you know, if you feel you're being singled out or you're not part of that network, that uh, makes women feel lonely and makes them say that, look, maybe I need to step out of the workforce. Each time the point is that the career of the women is seen a second to the man's, right? So if the man is getting posted out or his hours are getting very long or his mom is not well, then the natural Downfall, the downfall will be for the woman's career. That's basically she's the fall person. So it's both at home and at work. I see mindsets, and this is across newer businesses too. It's not like you know the traditional businesses or traditional industries are seeing this. Even in the new businesses, you see a big boys club, and and I think um, it, that mindset needs to be changed everywhere. It's it's not industry specific. We're approaching the end of the conversation, Manisha. What's the one toolkit you always have in your you know toolbox? which you think has sort of kept you in good stead all these years? Being curious, right? I think just having a growth mindset. And by growth, I don't mean like, what's the next title? I just mean like, how can I grow myself as an individual? How can I learn more? Be a constant learner and uh, be a constant listener, be a good listener. 
I think all of us, as you said, you know, when it gets lonely at the top, you tend to speak a lot, but don't listen to people around you. So surround yourself with good and positive people uh, has been another thing that's worked well for me. We get sanguine as we get senior and we think we know it all. We've seen it all. I've worked 30 years in this career. You know, what more can I learn? It's not true because, you know, you have to be a constant student if you want to be good at what you do. Yeah. With so many years of leadership experience and um, being in a very challenging world, what does leadership mean to you? So I think it's the same thing as I said before. Just be authentic. Bring your true self. Be inclusive. I think the worst thing you can do as a team member is to just have a hierarchical structure where, you know, just people at the top know it all and the people at the in, in the middle level and the bottom are just there to soak in what you're saying. It should not be the case at all. If you, any business to survive, this constant pressure of what's happening in the world in terms of disruption, you have to innovate. You have to keep reinventing yourself. And if you have to reinvent yourself, every you must listen to every team member because as I said before, I think the younger team members are much more up to speed with what's happening in the real world than we are, right? Just because the, the things things like technology, etc., come more, much more naturally to them and than they come to you and me, right? So listen to them. Make it an inclusive place. Make it a fearless place where people can bring their game, best game to the work, right? They don't feel scared. They feel a sense of ownership for the job, for the, for the organization. And then that's when you thrive because... It may be a gladiator sport, but at the end of the day, you need your team to win and to get the right outcomes. So that's what I think. And the most important thing is be authentic, right? Because as you said, then you don't have to think about what you said to the other colleagues and you're not saying it to this colleague. Just be authentic and honest and direct. And I've learned that sometimes, you know, it means giving some hard messages to people, but rather that than, you know, than, and, you know, maybe a colleague who's, who feel doesn't really belong to this world of banking, rather give them that message that they have a terrible outcome in the end. So so I think, yeah, the, I think just authentic and inclusive is the way I think of my leadership style now. Absolutely. Uh, this has been lovely, Manisha. And, uh, you know, since Atlanta Diaries is a place where my intent is to help people learn and unlearn their definitions of success and achievement. Any parting thoughts for aspiring leaders as they transition? I don't think there's, uh, you know, I don't think of myself as such a great leader that I need to give Give, give some learnings to the aspiring leaders but I think my view is that you know just have fun while you're working don't take as I said before don't take yourself too seriously I think what leaders do is that they isolate themselves because they start taking themselves very seriously and they feel they must build this aura around themselves and you know to be taken seriously it's not true at all you know just take your work seriously of course yet at no point should anyone in your team think that you can be you know that you can have a casual attitude to work but don't let that then convert into a very serious attitude about yourself. You know, we're all transient, we're all replaceable. And I don't think we should take ourselves too seriously because frankly, we all can be replaced by in, the ones who work in an organization. So that's my learn, my, my view that um, enjoy yourself, have fun and uh, be the change agent you want, to, you, you want to see in the world. That's it. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Manisha. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. All my guests have brought their most vulnerable selves on Atlanta Diaries. And even if a small segment of these conversations can help champion the journey of one person, it's going to be really worth it. I do have a request for you. Please share this podcast on your social media and with your family and friends. Our society is constantly evolving and Atlanta Diaries must too. I really appreciate if you can leave your feedback in the form of a review or a rating. These are impactful and rousing stories 
that need to be shared far and wide. See you next time for another one on Atlanta Diaries.